Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the true crime podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have Bobby Holmes with me again, a controversial figure in the British Murders fandom. I need to ask you, oh my gosh. <laughs> I when, when I had that review that someone said Bobby Holmes needs to be dropped. <laughs> Just cut me out. Yeah. Love me or hate me, right? Thoughts? Yeah. To be fair, Bobby comes in once every 12 or 13 weeks and does me an absolute solid by writing an episode and doing it for me so that I can have a week off. So I appreciate it. Thank you. And I I mean, I know where they're coming from, though, because their reasoning was that I interrupt and I do. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I'm trying to get better, but I get really excited and I feel like I need to blurt it out or I'm going to forget what I'm going to say. And then I end up talking over people. Um, I, I'm working on it. Okay. Apologize to that listener. Apologize in advance. We'll see how well that works in this episode. <laughs> I'm telling the story today. So hopefully as always so even though this is british murders this is what we do bobby comes on and tells us a transatlantic story which means from america generally you've done an (laughs) american one each time (laughs) what did you last time i can't even remember last time it was canadian canadian okay same thing same thing and this is the sixth time seventh time i don't know I lost count because <laughs> yeah. I don't think you came on my show last time either. No, I'm, I'm getting incredibly <laughs> lazy when it comes Jeez. to, we used to repay the favor. I used to repay the favor by going on Bobby's show and telling a story. But then I thought, no. Well, my listeners don't like you either. So <laughs> that is true. I think <laughs> your listeners don't like me far more than yours, than mine don't like you. For the most it's part, okay. it's, it's very positive about your collabs with me, but not on your fan's side. So we'll probably keep it wow. as we are at the moment. But that's enough rambling from me. <laughs> what have you got for me this week? Because I know you told me 
you messaged me on WhatsApp, that foreign app that you never got until you started needing to message me. And then I can't remember what you said. Well, today I'm covering the case of Larry Jean Bell, who is a convicted killer from South Carolina. So how familiar are you with the South, as in Southern United States? Other than, you know, they have an accent. Have an accent. I'm not, I mean, familiar, I'm aware there is a Southern United States. (laughs) Are the Southern United States the red states yeah i think most southern states are red yes but i just feel like (laughs) (laughs) republican conservative yes republican typically um but i feel like in true british murder fashion i should do some fun facts for you yes please let's have some facts (laughs) love the facts yeah history and geography baby let's do it (laughs) So the original province of Carolina was founded in 1663, and North and South Carolina became separate colonies in 1729. Lexington, which is where this crime took place, is a suburb of South Carolina state capital, which is Columbia. And the three main things that South Carolina is known for are beaches, golf courses, and historic districts, which... Myrtle Beach is where we would always go, and it's like just beaches and golf courses, literally. <laughs> so talk to me, where are we on the map then? Because I vaguely know where Texas is and Nevada is, kind of. So talk to me Texas about where we are. Yeah, I mean, are they not next <laughs> okay. to each other? I don't no, know. No, no, not even okay. close, but that's okay. Um, well, what do I know? You know, maybe I'm wrong, but Nevada, Nevada's, Nevada is more Nevada. Texas is kind of southern, but more in the middle of the country. We're looking way east coast, um, and South Carolina, east coast. Wow, okay, that's where um, the Carolinas are. Wow, and Lexington, like I said, that is where this crime takes place. Was formed in 1785, and it was named for the first battle of the Revolutionary War in Lexington, Massachusetts. Which brings me to the weird. The weird thing, like, why can't towns just be named uniquely? Why do they have to be named after another town? Well, most of the, not most, but a lot of American towns and cities are named new and then after a British place, right? Because we... I knew you were going to say that. We colonized your ass. (laughs) But here's what's ridiculous. Out of the 50 states... 25 of them have a city of Lexington. Oh, okay. Yeah. Washington, Virginia, Texas, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Oregon, Oklahoma, Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, New York, Nebraska, Missouri, Mississippi, Michigan, Minnesota, Massachusetts, Maine, Kentucky, Kansas, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, Georgia, and Alabama, which is crazy. (laughs) You really felt the need to damn them all. Yeah. Thank you. you can cut it out if you want, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's enough fun facts for me. But I know that's how you start a show, so I thought it'd be fun. Yeah, that's cool. I think my listeners will appreciate that. Thank you. I tried. But our story begins with 17-year-old Sharon Smith, who went by Sherry. And she often spent time with her friends and boyfriend at the pool during the summer. 
This was May 31st, 1985, the very beginning of her final summer before graduation. She was going to be starting her senior year of high school in the fall, which is 12th grade for us Americans. Sherry had left a pool party and pulled into the driveway of her family home. She stopped to check the mail. The mailbox was at the very end of their driveway, which was about 200 yards from her house. Sherry's father, Bob Smith, was sitting inside and looked out the window to see Sherry's car by the mailbox. And he didn't think anything of this as she typically checked the mail when returning home. But grabbing the mail doesn't take that long. When a few minutes passed and he didn't hear her come in the front door, he looked back out the window and her car was still sitting there, but her driver's door was ajar. Sherry was a diabetic and his first thought was maybe she had a moment of low blood sugar and passed out. So he slipped on his shoes and ran out the driveway. And as I said, the door was ajar and the engine was running, but Sherry was nowhere to be found. And in that moment, he knew that something was wrong. He runs back inside and calls the police. And an investigation into her disappearance began. And of course, they always jumped to the possible runaway theory. But the Smiths were adamant that that was not the case. She was not the type to run away. And again, her life literally depended on medication to control her diabetes. And she wouldn't leave home without it. So once they understood Sherry was not a runaway and she was likely abducted, a thorough search of the surrounding area began. Hundreds of locals gathered to help the Smiths look for Sherry. A police officer was stationed at their home. That way, if the kidnapper tried to call with, say, a ransom, they would be able to record and trace the call. But apparently they had some technical difficulties with the Smiths' phone and was not able to tap the line, which is unfortunate because a call did come through at 2.30 a.m. on June 3rd, which was three days after Sherry went missing. And the man on the other line claimed to be the one who took Sherry, and he gave information that only the kidnapper would know. He stated where he abducted Sherry by the mailbox, but I think most people in town knew that fact as they were helping look for her. But then he went on to describe what she was wearing in detail. He said that they would receive a letter from Sherry soon and ended the call. After this call, the Lexington police got in touch with the post office and intercepted the letter. Inside the envelope was two pages of yellow legal pad notepaper, and the title read, Last Will and Testament. So the document was indeed written in Sherry Smith's handwriting. Obviously, he instructed her to write this, and it's kind of hard to hear, but I'm going to read a little excerpt from this. It was dated... June 1st, 1985, at 3.10 a.m., which was roughly 12 hours after her disappearance. I love y'all. I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Dawn, and Richard, and everyone else, and all other friends and relatives. I'll be with my father now, so please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we all shared together. Please don't even let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come out of this. My thoughts will always be with you and in you. And then she wrote in parentheses, closed casket. I love you all so damn much. Sorry, dad. I had to cuss for once. Jesus, forgive me. And when she says she will be with her father now, she means Jesus, which I was confused the first time I read this because I was like, wait, Bob is her dad, is her father. But yeah, she's referring to Jesus, I believe. 
it's just eerie to hear a 17-year-old speak about her impending death in such a calm way and to include the whole closed casket, like super chilling. Like, does she know how she's going to die? Because typically a closed casket is for people who experience some sort of trauma and leave them disfigured or, you know, you don't want to see that um, at a funeral. Super sad. Just 12 hours after the first phone call, the kidnapper called again. And this time he was asking to speak to Sherry's mother, Hilda. And he asked if they got the letter and did they believe him now? And Hilda said, no, I haven't heard directly from Sherry. I need to know that she's alive and well. He said, you'll know in two or three days and hung up. And this time the police were successful in recording and tracing this call. So apparently they got that all figured out. It came from a payphone seven miles away from the Smith's house in Lexington. When they got to the payphone to check it out, they dusted it for fingerprints, but it had been wiped clean. Five hours later, another call was placed. This time, the kidnapper had a super creepy message for the Smiths. He said, Sherry is now a part of me, both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Our souls are now one. Don't know what he means by this, but super strange. So this call was placed from another payphone. This one was eight miles away. Once again, no evidence was left behind. 14 hours later, another call was traced. Quote, listen carefully. Take Highway 378 West to Traffic Circle. Take Prosperity Exit. Go one and a half miles. Turn right at the Moose Lodge, number 103. Go one quarter mile. Turn left at the white framed building. Go to a backyard. Six feet beyond. We're waiting. God chose us. And he hung up the phone. Do you know what a Moose Lodge is? No. (laughs) So basically... It's like a members only bar kind of thing. Like you have to uh, pay your dues to be a member to attend there. Like a working men's club. A bit of a working men's. We have a moose lodge. We have the eagles. They're all named after animals apparently, but yeah. Sounds cooler Um, than the working men's club. (laughs) (laughs) A members only club, like a bar that you go to hang out and have a drink and. But I believe they're national. So like if you're a member to one moose club, if you go to Moose Lodge, you can um if you're traveling and you're like, hey, there's a moose, then you can go to that moose if you want. So anyways. Hmm. So these are directions given to the Smith family. And they stay home just in case they get another call. Sherry shows up, hopefully, but the police follow these directions while the Smiths stay at home. They unfortunately find the lifeless body of 17-year-old Sherry Smith at the end of these directions. And they had hoped that Sherry was alive and would be escorted back home by the police. But instead, they get the devastating news that their teenage daughter had been murdered. So it was all false hope. He was kind of acting like she was alive. But the autopsy showed that she had been dead for two to three days already And it was hard to pinpoint an exact time of death due to the warm weather. Again, the South, it is June and very hot, which speeds up the decomposition of a body. So kind of hard for them to know exactly the time of day, but they are guessing two to three days. Eight days after the abduction, the killer called the Smiths again. 
Sherry's sister Dawn answered the phone and in a distorted voice, which I guess I should have mentioned that all these phone calls so far have been distorted in some way, whether he was um, using some sort of electronic device to change his voice or just like altered it himself. But it was, it's kind of, I've listened to them and it's, it's a little hard to understand, but this time in the distorted voice, the killer says, this is a collect call from Sherry. Do you accept these charges? Which I'm like, how awful to continue to torment these family, this family, because they know Sherry's dead. They have found her and here he is calling and tormenting them. But they're still tapping the phone line. They're still recording everything. And Dawn knows, you know, the longer he's on the phone that they can trace where it's coming from. So the caller says to Dawn, I did make love to her and we had oral sex three different times and she died. Can you handle this now? And Dawn was trying to keep her cool. And she, again, hoping it gets traced. She swallows hard and replies, yes. He continued, I tied her up to the bedpost with electric cord and she didn't struggle, cry or anything. She let me voluntarily from her chin to her head. I'll go ahead and tell you. I took duct tape and wrapped it all the way around her head and suffocated her. Tell the coroner to get the information out how she died because they didn't have a exact they knew she was strangled, but they didn't know how. So now they know it was duct tape. And Dawn tried her best to ignore what he was saying and just interjected with, the best thing to do now is just come forward, turn yourself in. And he replied that, quote, God was ready to accept her as an angel and then hung up. So like I said, luckily, these are still tapped phone calls and it was recorded came from another payphone, which was, you guessed it, wiped clean. But I'm kind of annoyed with his religious talk because I'm I'm not sure if he's just mocking the Smiths because they're devoted Christians or if he thinks, if he's got like a very literal God complex. <laughs> I haven't gotten any details about why he's saying things like this. You think once they've found the body and know that she's dead, he might have left it at that, but he clearly feels the need to continue tormenting the family. Oh yeah. He gets off on that for sure. It's more than just the killing. He enjoys tormenting this family. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now back to the story. So two weeks to the day following Sherry's abduction, nine-year-old Deborah Helmick was playing in her front yard with her brother car slowed down, pulled up to the curb, and a man jumped out, grabbing Deborah, forcing her into the car. The Helmicks had just moved into this neighborhood of Charlotte, North Carolina, two weeks prior. Now, technically, we talked about this. These are two different states, North Carolina, South Carolina, but they're only one county apart. So Charlotte is in the southern part of North Carolina, and Lexington is in the northern part of South Carolina. So they're about an hour and a half apart. If that's just slightly confusing, but they're in America somewhere. It's fine. Yeah. They're, they're an hour and a half apart. We'll put it that way. Okay. A neighbor of the Helmicks witnessed the abduction and ran over to alert Deborah's father, who was inside the home at the time. Unfortunately, the man got away with Deborah. The neighbor did feel like she got a pretty good look at the guy and was able to give a detailed description to the police. 
At this point, they hadn't formally linked these two abductions together, but happening just two weeks apart, police had a hunch. There were multiple teams working together on this case, and one person I'm sure many of you are familiar with is FBI profiler John Douglas. And for those of you who don't know, Douglas examined crime scenes and created profiles of perpetrators, describing their habits and attempting to predict their next moves. In cases where his work helped to capture the the criminals, he built strategies for interrogating and prosecuting them as well. So after researching the case and listening in on the phone calls, this is what John Douglas had to say about the perpetrator. This was no amateur. He was fairly criminally sophisticated and educated streetwise. You don't start off with this type of case. You would have a history of other sexual assaults and possibly abduction attempts. People like this have trouble in interpersonal relationships. They'll try marriage, but the marriage never works out. Generally, crimes like this are intraracial, white on white, for example. Also, he had some kind of electronic device that enabled him to disguise his voice, indicating a background in electronics. As far as age, I usually start at 25 with this type of violent crime. Here, we have an abduction at a mailbox in broad daylight on a Friday. That's pretty risky, so we start adding years. So we thought somewhere in the early 30s. Douglas noticed that when the killer called the Smiths, he usually ended up speaking with Sherry's sister, Dawn, who strongly resembled her older sister. Like Looking at pictures, they look like they could be twins. John Douglas asked Bob and Hilda Smith if they were comfortable using Dawn as bait to lure in the perpetrator, and they all agreed as long as she would be safe. Dawn said she'd do anything to catch her sister's killer. So what they did was they planned a graveside memorial for Sherry and publicized it. So like hundreds of people attended. And of course, seems like killers tend to flock to that. Like they they couldn't stay away. They got to go see their handiwork kind of thing. So um, they're keeping their eyes peeled for the guy there as well. And it did work. The killer called the Smiths again. And this time he threatened Dawn. He said, quote, God wants you to join Sherry Faye. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year. You can't be protected all the time, unquote. Then he asked her if she heard about Deborah Helmick. Don says no, and he goes on to give a long list of directions, just like he did leading to Sherry's body. And he didn't just call the Smiths this time. He also called the Helmick's residence and gave them the same instructions. He said, quote, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. Which is weird because all his other weird religious comments said they were chosen by God and this and, that, and this time he's saying, God forgive us all. So I don't know where he's coming from. <laughs> Inconsistent. Yes. But police follow the directions that were given by the caller. And sure enough, they're lying in the brush with the little body of nine-year-old Deborah Helmick. Autopsy showed that Deborah was killed the same day she was abducted. It could not be proven if she was sexually assaulted, but the cause of death was strangulation, which later came out was also with duct tape, just like he did to Sherry. So now it's more than a hunch. These two victims were abducted and killed by the same man, a man who believes he is untouchable. In the beginning, he used the electronic device to alter his voice over the phone, but these more recent calls, he gained confidence and he was speaking in his normal voice. So... 
Forensic Document Examiner Mickey Dawson was a key member on this investigation team. He was examining the last will and testament letter that was written by Sherry and mailed to the Smiths. He used something called an electrostatic detection apparatus. <laughs> and this was used to detect indentation on the paper. So if you remember earlier, I stated that this was written on a yellow legal pad, which mm-hmm. there's paper stacked. So if you were writing on a piece of paper and then tore it off, the writing that you did would leave an indentation in the paper underneath. So They were checking the papers that were mailed to see any indentations that were previously written in that pad. So the machine did detect something. It was a list of names and telephone numbers, and it appeared to be an in-case-of-emergency call list. And they they could tell it was phone numbers, but most of them were incomplete. There was one number that was only missing the final digit, so they started there. It began with 205, which was an Alabama number. The next three digits were 837, which was the exchange for Huntsville, Alabama. And then they had nine out of the 10 digits. There were only 10 possibilities for what that last digit could be. So they tried every possible option until someone answered the phone. They asked the young man who answered if he had any connections to the Lexington area because he's in Alabama. And he says, yes, my dad lives in Lexington. His father, Ellis Shepard, lived relatively close to the Smiths, but he had a solid alibi. He and his wife were on vacation during the time Sherry was killed. So the detectives played Ellis the more recent phone calls where the killer hadn't bothered to disguise his voice, and he immediately said, I know who that is. That's Larry Jean Bell. Larry was actually house-sitting for the Shepherds while they were on vacation. And the indentations found on the legal pad were indeed an in-case-of-emergency list of phone numbers, which included his son in Alabama. So it's all coming full circle. Damn. I know. And now we get a little history on our killer, or the villain, as Stu likes to call it. Call them villains. They're not heroes. (laughs) That's true. And we get to see how accurate John Douglas's profile was for this Mm -hmm. perpetrator. Cool. So, Larry Jean Bell was born in Ralph, Alabama. He had three sisters and one brother. The family moved around a lot, but he he spent most of his high school years in Columbia, South Carolina, attending at Eau Claire High from 1965 to 1967. And by the time he graduated, high school that is, the Bell family had relocated to Mississippi and began training, and Bell began training as an electrician. So background in electronics, check. He ended up moving back to Columbia where he fell in love and got married. And I'm not able to find his wife's name, but honestly, she isn't an integral part of this story. We can just call her Mrs. Bell. And the couple had one son together. In 1970, Bell joined the Marines. His service was short-lived due to a knee injury. While he was cleaning his gun, he accidentally shot himself. So he was discharged just months after enrolling. Like his gun? Yes. Discharged from the Marines. Anyways. So he was was discharged just months after enrolling and found a job working at a prison guard at the Department of Corrections in Columbia. 
So after just a month of working there, Bell and his family moved back to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Mr. and Mrs. Bell divorced in 1976. Attempts marriage, but fails. Check. At the time of the murders, Larry Jean Bell was 35 years old. Douglas predicted early 30s, but close Mm -hmm. enough. Douglas also said that this was not an amateur. He likely had a history of other sexual assaults and possibly abduction attempts. So Bell's past did include sexually motivated crimes. He had been caught harassing women over the phone, making sexual threats. He also attempted to kidnap a female student from the University of South Carolina, but failed. So check, check. (laughs) So it's kind of eerie how good this guy is at profiling, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of bad people have a lot of things in common too. Yeah, there's a few things that, they all share. Yeah. With the electronics thing, I was thinking, why does that mean he's got background in electronics? But then, like you said, he, he did. So. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. But that? also just the 80s, I don't know. Not that many people knew how to handle I think voice changes and stuff, they were very 80s and 90s, weren't they? Voice changes. You don't get many voice changes these days. I had a pretty cool phone that changed my voice. It was very good for prank calling. Did it get rid of your <laughs> no guttural fry? <laughs> <sighs> you know, I've tried to talk differently. This is this is how I talk. So sorry, y'all. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Twenty-eight days after kidnapping Sherry Smith, Larry Jean Bell was arrested. He denied involvement, but the evidence was stacking up against him. Inside of the shepherd's home, detectives found blonde hairs that did not belong to anyone living there. They were microscopically similar to Sherry's. So forensic science was not to the point where they can say it's a 100% match at this in 1985. Yeah. He had taken Sherry to the shepherds, and that is where he had her write her last will and testament on the yellow legal pad. John Douglas actually interviewed Larry Bell. He told Bell, I developed a program on criminal profiling for the FBI. And one of the things we've found is that people we talk to, they make it seem dreamlike. They did a crime, but they don't remember doing it. It's like two sides of their personality. They have a good side and then they have a bad side. Then he asked, when did you start feeling bad about this case? Bell said, when I saw the cemetery, I didn't feel good about it. What about it? Bell responded, all I know is that the good Larry Jean Bell couldn't have done this, but the bad Larry Jean Bell could have. And that is the half-assed confession that they got from Larry Bell. (laughs) But during his trial, Bell did his best to make himself appear criminally insane. He was quite theatrical. He was shouting weird things like, the Mona Lisa is a man. And then I want Don Smith to marry me. And when he was asked a question that he didn't want to answer, he would just say, silence is golden, my friend. (laughs) So (laughs) just a strange man all around. Probably sounded so clever in his head. Yeah, I guess. But luckily the jury saw through his act and he was found guilty of kidnapping and first degree murder of Sherry Smith. And his sentencing was death. Wow. After Bell's sentencing, Bob Smith had this to say about his daughter and her last will and testament. 
That letter has been more closure to me than any kind of closure that the courts could do. Just the fact that she knew where she was going and she had that kind of faith. In 1987, Bell was tried for the kidnapping and murder of Deborah Helmick. Guilty again, a second death sentence. And I haven't heard of this before, but he was actually given a choice. Death by electric chair or lethal injection. He chose the electric chair. Hopefully I am. Yeah, I know. I'm like, hopefully I'm never in this situation, but I would choose lethal injection like a million times over before the electric chair. But no one does the electric chair anymore, right? I assume that was in a a phasing it out stage, probably the late 80s. I think the states that do still have the death penalty is lethal injection, but don't hold me to that. I love how it's like, we don't do the electric chair. Why? It's inhumane. He's still killing someone. Right, yes. Oh, well, there was a... Oh, the lethal injection's painless, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I don't think it is, though. I don't know. That's what I mean. You're getting, like, horrible shit put in your body. It's all terrible. Just, you know, don't do anything that deserves the death penalty and you should be fine, but... Don't kill them that way. That's inhumane. (laughs) Kill them this way. Much better. Yeah. Bell is actually thought to be linked to two other unsolved disappearances of girls in Charlotte, North Carolina. 26-year-old Sandy Elaine Cornett. Sandy was engaged to a co-worker of Bell's, and she was last seen in November of 1984, so prior to these killings that he was charged for. And 21-year-old Denise Newsom Porch. So Denise actually managed the Yorktown apartments in Charlotte, North Carolina. And her last known whereabouts was on July 31st, 1975, when she was showing an apartment to a man. Denise had left a note on the kitchen table for her husband explaining where she was, but she never came home. She was legally declared dead in 1982. Police later discovered that Bell had been living just 300 yards from the Yorktown apartments when Denise disappeared. Unfortunately, if he is responsible, these two cases will probably never be solved. But that's what I have. So he was executed. He was executed. Yep. And he had no last words. What was his last meal? I didn't look that up. I should have. Oh, that's interesting but I didn't. stuff. Man. Hmm. I'll find that I can out. Only imagine. <laughs> but no, I thought he'd ramble something like. God's chosen me to be his angel and something weird before he got strapped to the chair, but nope, no last words. Well, thank you for coming on the show again and for saving me the hassle of writing, even though I have to edit this. A lot. Arguably, probably (laughs) take longer than research and writing an episode. (laughs) (laughs) I have to rethink these. Potentially, potentially. I'm sure you're supposed to the same perfect and you don't have to edit anything no i actually made a in my final recording which i listened back to i made an error in my latest episode which was fred west part two i said 1994 when i should have said 1974 so that's embarrassing yeah and i think I thought maybe I did that in here somewhere too at the end because I was like 85 and then I was like, wait a second. I don't know. So potentially I did that too. And you know, I used to do like Ronald and Donald and like switch names up. Mm -hmm. Terrible. But 
Yeah. And I record the whole episode like that, so, you know, can't even fix it. <laughs> you just put a little I'm... thing in after. So just for, for context, I was calling him Ronald for the whole episode, and I'm so sorry. His name is Donald. Um, so just ignore me. Yeah. Asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've gotten much better with that as well. Yeah, Improved. it's good. But yeah, I appreciate that. It's a very sad story. We can check out Bobby at Killer Stories on yes. everything. Killer Stories, Killer Stories PC, Killer Stories Pod, <laughs> Killer Story Pod on Twitter, Killer Stories Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I don't even really do TikTok anymore. I was yeah, including it, and then I'm like, I haven't put anything on there in like a year, yeah. so yeah. don't bother. It's boring. I mean, I am going to link all your shit in the description, so that's probably the best place to go. Perfect. And we always sign out, don't we? How do we sign out? Bobby? We do. I say, until next time, this has been a killer story. <laughs> and then I say, cheerio. <laughs> 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 See you later. <laughs>